And uh, thank you to uh, the Balfour Project. I'm uh, Nicholas Pelham. I'm uh, the Middle East correspondent for uh, The Economist. Um, uh, we're going to be uh, spending a lot of today looking at, um, uh, at uh, how the coexistence that used to uh, prevail in the Middle East has been unraveling um, to the horror that we're seeing today. Um, I'm uh, delighted to, to uh, have a chance to talk to Professor Avi Schling. Um, he's a distinguished historian, a fellow of the British Academy, and an emeritus professor of international relations at St. Anthony's College, Oxford University. He's also a regular contributor to The Guardian, Middle East Eye, and most of the panels of uh, the Balfour Project's uh, lecture, and, and many of the panels of the Balfour Project's lectures and conferences. Uh, among his Critically acclaimed books are The Iron Wall, Israel and the Arab World, uh, and a biography of the former King of Jordan, uh, King Hussein. Uh, his latest work, published in June by One World, is uh, called Three Worlds, Memoirs uh, of an Arab Jew. It's a powerful autobiography um, of his uh, early years and the multiple layers that go to make up Avi uh, Shlain. Um, it, it, it details his time as a his early years uh, as an uh, Arab child who grew up in Baghdad and then the Jewish Israeli schoolboy and soldier and ultimately the British pupil and uh, academic. Uh, and it's uh, uh, a, a fascinating exploration of how the dichotomy that we see in the Middle East today um, was how, how it has come about through the eyes of uh, this child and then schoolboy and young adult. Um, but Today, the term Arab Jew uh, sounds very much like a sort of um, a persona of schizophrenia. And I just wondered, Avi, uh, when, you're, when you came to choose your title, what was it that made you call it uh, the memoir of an Arab Jew? And why do you call yourself an Arab Jew? That is a very good place, very good question to start the discussion. Uh, and. Uh, the first thing to say is that this is not the title, it's a subtitle. The title of the book is Three Worlds, and the subtitle is Memoirs of an Arab Jew. Uh, and the, the title refers to the three worlds in which I lived. Um, in Baghdad from 1945 to 1950, uh, in Israel where I went to school from 19. 50 uh, to 1960, and then uh, London, where I went to the Jewish Free School uh, from the age of 15 to 18. And the book stops when I was 18, the nar narrative stops, but then there is a long epilogue on the evolution of my views about Israel and Palestine up to the present day. The subtitle is Memoirs of an Arab Jew, and I chose it deliberately because it's a controversial uh, concept um, and it's uh, much disputed uh, in Israel. So let me start by defining what I mean by an Arab Jew. Uh, I mean uh, by this term uh, a Jew who lived in an Arab country. Uh, a Jew who lived in an Arab country. And there aren't that many uh, Arab Jews left 
in the Middle East today. Uh, uh, I lived in Iraq and up to the age of five, so I'm, by my definition, an Arab Jew. But anyone who was born, any Jew who was born, any Israeli who was born after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 is not an Arab Jew by that definition. Their parents, if they came from an Arab country, they would be Arab Jews. So there are not that many of us. In Iraq, in 1950, when we left, there were 135,000 Jews. Today in Iraq, there are only three Jews left. Um, uh, so the category of people, uh, who the, the, the number of people who fit into this category is shrinking uh, all the time. But to me personally, it's very, very important to invoke uh, this concept, to explain what it means, and above all, to tell our listeners uh, and to tell the readers of my book that once upon a time, uh, this was quite a widespread phenomenon. Once upon a time, before the establishment of the state of Israel, a large number of Jews lived in the uh, Arab world, and there was nothing unusual about it. Today in Israel, this is a much disputed concept. People say that it's a contradiction in terms, that it's an even an ontological impossibility. If you are a Jew, you cannot be an Arab, and if you're an Arab, you cannot be a Jew. And I dispute that. I maintain that we can all have multiple identities. We don't have to be one or the other. And finally, uh, I can think of no better way of describing my identity in the first five years of my life, there's no better way of describing it than that of an Arab Jew. Can, so, so can, let's go back to those um, early years. Um, uh, I kind of wonder how much you remember of of that time. You describe it very movingly in in the book. I think through your through your mother's eyes, but of a world of. Um, it was a sumptuous world, really. Your uh, parents lived in the sort of lap of luxury. They would play card games with ministers. They had the connections at the, the highest level. Um, you would have these delightful picnics on the uh, banks of the Tigris. It was a kind of really sumptuous world, sort of um, huge lunches, long afternoon siestas, mascouf, um, uh, uh, at, at the picnics. And I just kind of wonder, are you projecting back into a, a past? Are you trying to imagine sort of nostalgically what that world was like, or is that kind of really how, how it was? It certainly kind of been the, the life that, that most Iraqi Jews were living. Um, this is an autobiography, so it's a personal account. Um, it's not a history of the Jews of Iraq. Uh, and we were a very privileged Jewish family. We were upper middle class family. Uh, my father was an extremely wealthy merchant. My parents had high social uh, status. We lived a, a life of luxury in a very large house with a lot of uh, servants. Um, our lifestyle was very um, slow, relaxed, uh, and even sybaritic. Um, now, 
so I, I describe the experience of my family in, in the book, and I don't claim that we are representative or typical because the Jews in Iraq belong to all classes, upper middle class, middle class, very solid middle class um, of Jews, but also there were a lot of very poor Jews. Uh, so I don't claim to generalize. Uh, and the other thing is that I was five when we left Baghdad to move to Israel. Uh, my um, memories are very partial and fragmented. I don't have very coherent uh, and detailed memories of our life in, in Baghdad. Um, so one memory, one of my earliest memories is in the summer, uh, sleeping uh, on the roof of the house because it was so hot and looking at the skies and seeing the stars. So I have these disjointed uh, memories. But uh, my mother uh, supplied all the details about our life in Iraq. Uh, my mother, uh, his, her full name was Masuda Saida for short, and when we moved to Israel, her name changed to Aida. She died in Ramad Gan, our hometown in Israel, two years ago, age 96. She was lucid to the very end, and I had many conversations with her. I kept interviewing her and taking notes about the interviews, which I um, worked into the narrative of the book. So my mother is the main source uh, and the hero of uh, what I write about our life in, in Baghdad. Uh, and she described this lifestyle in very great detail. There was nothing she liked more than talking about the good old days yeah, in Baghdad. And she used to uh, speak a great deal about the wonderful Muslim friends that we had in Baghdad. And one day I said to her, uh, did we have any Zionist friends? And she looked at me as if it was a very weird question to ask. And she said, no, Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. It's nothing uh, to do with us. And, and that statement, I think, was representative of um, and typical of the Jews in Iraq in general, that we were Arab Jews, we were Iraqis. Uh, my mother said once, I was 100% uh, Iraqi. We had deep roots uh, in the country, and we were Iraqis who, whose religion to, happened to be Judaism, just as there were many Iraqis whose religion was um, is, um, uh, Islam or Christian, and there are many other um, minorities. So uh, in the book is a combination of the research that I did, uh, and I did a huge amount of research about the history of Iraq, um, the endless, countless interviews with my mother, uh, as well as after the age of five, after we arrived in Israel, it mm. became much more of an autobiography. So I, I I'd like to come on, of course, to, to your time in Israel, but just sort of staying briefly with with Baghdad, you know, other other Jews of Iraqi origin have looked back at this mm, idyll, as you describe it, 
and they have a huge sense of rejection of having been turfed out by the country where they had lived for 2000 years. They're full of kind of anger and resentment and hostility towards their, their country of origin or their ancestral, ancestral lands. And yet listening to you, I don't get a sense that you have that sense of pain or blame for, for, for essentially for, for Iraq. And I kind of wonder why that is. Why do you focus so much later on, and we'll come on to Israel, but what on, on Israel's role in essentially your expulsion, but, but let Iraq off the hook. So different people, different um, Iraqi Jews had different experience uh, in uh, Iraq. And some of them have very bitter experiences of the way they were treated in Iraq and the persecution uh, that they faced. But I think you probably exaggerate slightly the proportion of Iraqi Jews who feel that way. Certainly, there are some. I'll give you just one example. Uh, Shmuel Moray, who was a friend of mine, he was an eminent professor of um, um, uh, Arabic history at the Hebrew uh, University. Uh, and he has written an autobiography, uh, which very much, um, uh, which in which he presents himself um, as a victim, as someone who was persecuted, as someone who was beaten up for being uh, a Jew. Um, so I wouldn't say, uh, you know, it's difficult to say what proportion of Jews uh, from Iraq felt that way about their time there and what proportion of Jews feel uh, as, as I do. Uh, but it, it is important to uh, remember that the establishment of the State of Israel was a turning point for all of us, whatever our life was like in uh, uh, Iraq. My mother once said to me, when Israel was created, everything was turned upside down. Um, and that was indeed a real turning point in the history of the Jews uh, in uh, Iraq. So that's why I emphasize the importance of the birth of Israel and the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, because what Zionism did was to give the Jews uh, a territorial dimension for the first time in two millennia. Now there was a Jewish state. Uh, any Arab who didn't like Jews um, was in a much stronger position now to say to the Jews, you don't belong here. You're outsiders. You're foreigners. You are the brothers of the Zionists who have expelled uh, our, brother, our, our brothers from Palestine. You are the associated with the Zionists who have taken over uh, Palestine. So why don't you go and join your brothers in, uh, in, in the Jewish state? Uh, that's why I emphasize the role of um, Israel, the creation of Israel, 
in upsetting what maybe I describe as an idol. Um, uh, I wouldn't go that far, but certainly I describe life as one of uh, coexistence between Jews and Muslims, Muslims and Jews and Christians and other uh, minorities. A great deal changed when Israel was created and the polarization between Jews and Arabs that we see today, uh, it goes back to that period. And today we see to very, in an extreme uh, fashion in Gaza, how polarized um, the Middle East policies have, have become between Jews and Arabs. It, it, it must also have been in part rooted in your own experience of this um, new creation of, of Israel. It can't have been a, an easy landing, although you, know, you probably did have the benefit of, you didn't end up in, in, in your family didn't end up in the kind of uh, the camp surrounded by barbed wire. Um, but it, it was a, and I don't think you was your family was sprayed on arrival with DTT as um, with pesticides as as other Jews coming from Iraq were. Um, but it it was a it must have been a difficult time. Sort of gone were the servants. Um, uh, instead of mixing with ministers, your father lost his business. He was unemployed for for most of his life, as as you just describe it. Um, you had a prime minister at the time, David Ben Gurion, who described kind of anybody coming from the east or described the influx of Jews from from all over uh, Muslim lands as savage hordes. And I guess in some way you felt that your own identity was 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 under attack and you were made to suppress it. And I just wonder if you could explain again sort of what that was like, what it was like being a child where your own identity was questioned and in some ways erased. So, we were privileged, uh, we were wealthy, uh, and we didn't go through the same experience as the um, great majority of Iraqi Jews who ended up in Israel. Um, about 125,000 Iraqi Jews out of 135,000 ended up uh, in Israel. And they were sprayed with DDT on arrival, which is not the happiest of encounter with the promised land. Uh, and then they were sent to Ma'abarot, to transit camps, where conditions were very, very difficult. Uh, sanitary conditions were poor. Uh, the food was very different to the one they were used to. The managers of the Ma'abarot were all Ashkenazi Jews with very little knowledge or understanding of the newcomers, of the status in their previous society, their achievements, um, the culture. So it was a very difficult transition um, for the vast majority of Iraqi Jews. For us, it was less painful, less, the transition was less painful because my mother had a British passport. So in 1950, when life became unsafe, um, she took her mother, uh, my two sister and myself, uh, uh, we left on a regular flight from Baghdad 
to Cyprus. Uh, and then by boat we went to Israel and we lived not in a Mahabara, but with uh, an uncle of my mother's in Ramad Gan. But um, it was an extremely um, dramatic turn of fortunes. Um, gone were the servants, gone was the Sybaritic lifestyle. Uh, and my father left Iraq illegally uh, with the help of the Kurds uh, across the border into Iran. And then he joined us in, in Israel. And he was 50 when he arrived in Israel. He didn't know Hebrew and he never found his feet in the new society. It was a totally different um, so, uh, kind of society. He tried to business ventures and they failed. And when the money ran out, my mother had to go and work as the telephonist in the town hall and she became the breadwinner. And my father was really a broken man. Uh, he was mildly depressed uh, until he died um, in 1969, you, you you have this you have this very touching portrait of him as the, the same man who would who 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 kept wearing his three piece suits. I think they were Italian made, and um, he would still go to the local cafe and try and sort of recreate that that world which he'd lost and um, hang out with sort of other people who would just remember their their hard times. But he was, as you described it, very stoic. But I just want to sort of focus a bit on 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 you i mean how did you did you feel a sense that you had to deny your past living as a young schoolboy in israel yes i very much felt that um uh, that uh, i had to deny my past and i would not deny because there was no denying that i was an, an iraqi boy um uh, but i was ashamed of being an iraqi boy um, because Israel was a European-style society, and most of the people in Israel were from Europe. Um, and uh, the paradox of Zionism is that uh, it uh, emphasized the historic connections of the British, of the Jewish people with Palestine, but it was in its culture, in its connections, in its geopolitical orientation, it was completely tied up with the West. So Israel was um, a, a Western, as a European-style society. The Ashkenazi uh, leaders dominated. They were the political elite, they were the economic elite, um, the military elite, and most certainly uh, the cultural uh, elite. So the Ashkenazi elite set the tone in this country. And as a boy, I felt out of place. I felt that I didn't belong. Uh, I saw a new state growing up at a phenomenal speed around me. But uh, in a sense that I couldn't articulate then, but I can articulate now, I felt that uh, Israel was, a, was an Ashkenazi trick. And I wasn't part of it, and I didn't quite understand uh, how it works. And the end result was that I had an inferiority complex. 
The inferiority complex was on account of being uh, an Iraqi boy because the culture in Israel was um, uh, rather elitist. Uh, the people in Israel looked down on the Arab world. Uh, they looked down on everything that was Arab. Uh, the Arabic language was considered uh, an ugly, primitive language. Uh, and I, uh, for better or worse, internalized the values of my and the ethos of my new society. And therefore, I had a sense of inferiority, which uh, stayed with me uh, to the end until I left Israel. And really, this sense of inferiority defined my relationship with Israeli society. So I never felt uh, at home in Israel. When, when you look at sort of Israel today and you see the um, sort of the exercise in, in demographic engineering that, that is taking place with a movement of you know, upwards of one point five, six, seven, eight uh, million uh, Palestinians um, from one end of Gaza to, to the other. Um, and then you sort of read your book, it's, it, it really brings home the extent to which sort of demographic engineering has been there since, since, um, since Israel's beginnings, both with the um, exodus of the Palestinian population and the exodus of, of the Jewish population from much of the Arab world and then even the degree to which it was sort of being shunted around Israel on arrival. And I just wondered, I mean, there is this kind of sense that comes through from your book of being a victim of demographic engineering. And yet the experience that you chose at, when you were growing up or the, the impact that that had on you was in some ways to push you to the to the right, to, to, to widen that chasm with, with, with other victims of demographic engineering. And I just wonder kind of why that was. What was it about the Jewish population that came from the Arab world, which so encouraged them to turn their back on, on their past and push them to, to the right of Ashkenazi Jews? Uh, that's a very important uh, fact about Israeli society to this day, uh, that a very large number of um, uh, Arab Jews or Mizrahim, as they call them, that's the collective term for Jews who came to Israel from Arab, from uh, the Middle East or North Africa. Uh, the Mizrahim from the beginning to this day tended to vote for the parties of the right, for the Likud, for parties further right uh, to the right of the Likud, uh, and for the some of the uh, um, uh, religious parties uh, as well. So why is that? Uh, and the official explanation is that these Jews lived with Arabs. They knew what Arabs were like. They knew. The Arab men, they understood the Arab mentality in inverted commas. They understood that the Arabs only un, uh, understand the language of force. Uh, and therefore, you had to be really stand your ground, really be uh, really tough 
in dealing uh, with the Arabs. That's why they supported uh, nationalistic parties. Uh, another reason, another explanation for um, uh, this phenomenon uh, is that the Jews from the Middle East and North Africa were newcomers uh, uh, in Israel, and they wanted to establish their credentials as good Israelis, and they did that by um, uh, joining and supporting nationalistic parties, right-wing parties. And there is um, a third factor, and that is that the uh, Labour Party elite was very elitist and discriminatory, very arrogant in the way that it treated uh, the newcomers from the East. Uh, and as one, one small uh, example of that arrogance was spraying them with DDT uh, on arrival. So um, uh, Arab Jews in Israel felt very acutely that they were looked down upon by and discriminated against by the Labour Party elite. And Menachem Begin, the leader of the Likud, uh, played on this sense of resentment against the Labour Party elite. That's another reason why um, uh, people uh, voted for, um, for what was Herod, then became the Labour Party, the, the Likud. And in the book, I describe my own experience as a 14 or 15 year old boy during an election time. Um, I was interested in politics. I went to a rally at which Menachem Begin spoke in the Ramat Gan town square. Um, and um, I was attracted to him, not because of his views, right-wing views, um, but because he castigated the Labour Party elite uh, and its treatment, and he treated us as equals. He said, you are my brothers. We are the same. We're all Israelis. We're all in it together. And I think that's the major reason why um, the Labour Party has never had that kind of appeal and why the Labour Party barely exists now. It dominated Israeli politics for the first three decades, and now it's reduced the six seats in the Knesset. Uh, I will come to questions, I think, shortly. I've got one more question that, that from questions from the audience shortly. I've got one more question I'd like to put to you, which was uh, just to, if I could just read it from, from towards the, from, from the epilogue where you, um, you come up with this very strong condemnation of, of Zionism. You say, and I'll quote, the Zionist movement deepen the divisions between Israelis and Palestinians, between Israel and the Middle East, between Judaism and Islam, between Hebrew and Arabic. The Zionist movement and the state of Israel have actively worked to erase our common past, our intertwined histories and our centuries old heritage of pluralism, religious tolerance, cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism and coexistence. Um, and when you look at what's happening in Gaza today and the trauma that has just um, which is searing both Palestinian and Israeli populations and there's just the extent of the chasm which now exists 
between them and this seems to be widening by by the day and then you read your book and it's this sort of peeing to try and recover um a past where this divide didn't exist it's an attempt to try and kind of i think as you 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 describe in the book at one point as kind of that somehow Jews coming from the Arab world could have been a bridge to the Arab world. And then you quote Ben-Gurion saying, um, um, if uh, heaven forbid we do not succeed um, in creating a, I think he, he's he's describing, this is Ben-Gurion describing Jews in Muslim countries who lived in a society that was, as he described it, backward, corrupt, uneducated, and lacking in independence and self-respect, and then wants to change them into, again, to quote him, uh, your, your quote, superior moral and give them an in, superior moral and intellectual qualities. And then he comes up with this line, if heaven forbid we do not succeed, there is a danger that the coming generation may transform Israel into a Levantine state. And I have a sense from reading the book that actually you'd love Israel to be a Levantine state and you would love it to be sort of part and parcel of the region. And I just wonder, you know, when you look at what's happening today and compare it and and just see how far that is from your dream, are you just living in a, you know, is it a pipe dream? Is it some fantasyful world? Do you see any prospect that, you know, that Jews from the Arab world perhaps could be that bridge to bring Israel back into into harmony with the rest of the region? We don't have any illusions. Um, and uh, I don't think that the world that I describe in the book, the world of um, Muslim Jewish harmony um, and coexistence uh, can ever be fully restored. Uh, so the point that I want to make in the book is that it, this world did exist once and uh, young people or people who were born after 1948, Arabs, um, uh, Arab, uh, Arabs would have no idea that this world ever existed. That's why there is so much Arab interest in, in this book, because it's all new to them. So I wanted to um, uh, reanimate um, and describe that world, uh, rather than to give it as a template or a model for how the Middle East could become. Uh, and But also, it's a personal account, and by talking about this past and uh, seeing the very positive qualities of uh, that world that enables me um, to think, start thinking about a better future for our region. Uh, and that brings me, as I say, in the epilogue, with, um, I used to support a two-state solution, but Israel has killed the two-state solution project with settlements. So now I support um, one state with equal rights for all its citizens, regardless of religion and um, um, ethnicity. Uh, uh, and that, in a sense, that ideal uh, is uh, would be a replica or a continuation of what happened in the in the in the distant past. But the real, you know, I stand by my critique of um, Zionism, the one you just uh, quoted. It's a very harsh judgment on Zionism, but I stand by it uh, because Zionism 
is a nationalist pro project. It's a national project. And all national projects, or every nationalism has an inbuilt tendency to go to extremes. And Zionism used to be labor Zionism, mainstream Zionism. Israel in the 1950s was a very attractive socialist uh, society. But look at Israel today. It's become a, a pariah state. And the, the, the Zionism of the founding fathers has become the Zionism of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the more extreme right-wing members of his coalition like um, and um, uh, so Zionism has moved to real extremes, and we can see how extreme Zionism, how brutal, how aggressive, how xenophobic, how overtly uh, racist Zionism has become in the present government. There are quite a few questions about kind of contemporary politics, and I'm sure some people will take you to task um, for them. Um, and we'll come on to those, but let's just go back to the questions from the audience um, re regarding uh, the uh, the book. And, and, and one of the questions that they raise is, again, you're speaking a lot about Jewish nationalism, and they don't hear much from if you're talking about Arab nationalism and the sense to which even to this day, you know, Jews of Iraqi origin can't get their passports back because of Iraqi government policy. And so there's a question from Patricia Cockrell, who asks, did the Arab Jews decide to move to Israel after 1948? Or were they, as I was told by Israelis, expelled from Arab countries? First of all, um, the Jews were not expelled from the Arab countries, and uh, they, we were not expelled from Iraq. So we are not refugees in the real sense, in the full sense of the world, word. Whereas the Palestinians were expelled in 1948, a quarter, three quarters of a million Palestinians became refugees. There was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Uh, uh, we were in a real sense victims of the Arab-Israeli conflict, but we were not expelled and therefore we are not uh, refugees in the full sense of the word. Uh, but the other part of the question is about my emphasis on Jewish nationalism. Uh, that is true. But in the book, I also deal with the part played by Arab nationalism. In the interwar period, there was an upsurge of Arab nationalism in Iraq, in the 1930s, there were a lot of Nazi propaganda and anti-Semitism, but anti-Semitism was a European malady which was exported to the Middle East and to Iraq. There wasn't um, anti-Semitic literature in Arabic. It had to be translated from European languages. But in the book, I talk about the uh, rise of Arab nationalism, especially in the aftermath of the 1948 war, where the Arab defeat in Palestine was followed by a backlash against the Jews uh, in the Arab world. And there was also persecution of the Jews in Iraq by the government. Uh, and I give this as the main reason for the Jewish exodus, but 
there are other reasons uh, uh, as well. So I, I don't altogether discount the role of Arab nationalism in driving the Jews out of Iraq or other Arab countries. You, you were last in you, you were last in Baghdad in when in 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 nineteen fifty. Can you ever see a chance of of going back? Um, there is going to be an Arabic edition of my book, and I very very seriously thought of going to visit Baghdad um, soon with my wife and daughter. And my wife and daughter. Uh, who read the book um, uh, are very keen to go and visit uh, Iraq. So we plan to go, uh, but two things made me change my mind. One, I learned that last year the Iraqi parliament passed a law which said that any Iraqi who promotes normalization with a Zionist entity it doesn't say Iraq, so with a Zionist entity, is liable either to life imprisonment or a death sentence. And I have dual nationality, Israeli and British. I served in the IDF. And therefore, if I were to go to uh, Iraq, I would be in danger, but also I'll put in danger any Iraqi who talked to me. That's, uh, that's the main reason that I've decided not to go for the time being, but I hope to go one day. There's another question sort of um, about uh, Israel's in, in internal makeup and the 20% uh, of the population or thereabouts uh, who are um, uh, um, Palestinians uh, with Israeli citizenship. Um, and this comes is a question from uh, Richard Weeks, who said, um, how would you compare your experience and sense of identity with that of an Israeli Arab? Um, is that as much or, or more a contradiction in terms? Is, is the term Israeli Arab as much or more of a contradiction in terms as that of a, an Arab Jew? Arabs in Israel who constitute a fifth of the population um, don't like the term Israeli Arabs. This is a term that Israel uses to describe the Israeli Arabs. They prefer the term a Palestinian citizen of the state of Israel. Uh, and my sympathy is very much with them because since 1948, the Arab community in Israel accepted the rules of the game. They accepted that they were a minority they try to work within uh, the democratic uh, system. They tried to become uh, uh, loyal Israeli citizens, but the Israeli establishment always called shouldered them. Um, and therefore they feel alienated. And there is, although they have uh, the vote in Israel, um, they are discriminated at almost every level of life uh, in, in Israel. Uh, and so my sympathy is very much with them. They wanted to integrate, but Israeli society for the most part has uh, uh, rejected them. And therefore they can't 
identify with Israel in the way that it defines itself today. And this is an important point. Israel has become uh, much more ethnocentric, much more of a Jewish supremacist uh, state. And the evidence for that is the nation state law of 2018, which says that uh, the Jews have a unique, unique means exclusive right to self-determination in Israel. So this law creates two categories of Israeli citizens, Jews who are superior and Arabs who are inferior. And it's very, very difficult for Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel to feel any loyalty towards this um, um, Jewish supremacist state. Uh, I was going to leave sort of questions about the end game and, and the, sort of the day after of the current violence um, until towards the end. But I suppose that does beg the question that one of the, the question that comes from Susan Murphy, um, which is realistically, can you detect any support for a, um, for, for, for one democratic state? Um, I imagine she's primarily referring to uh, Jewish society in Israel, but perhaps also to to Palestinian. There's another question which has just arrived from uh, Basil uh, Bekdash, um, who, who, in a similar vein, asked whether you'd make a distinction between a Jewish state and a state for the Jews. Um, the former Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad has said in a recent webinar that uh, Israel's identity was both, um, uh, I think he described it according to Basil as a nationalist fabrication. Um, and uh, so there's that question whether there's a, a distinction to, to be made between a Jewish state and a state for the Jews and what resonance there really is for what traction one democratic state might might have in um, Israel and Palestine today. There is a distinction between Israel being officially a Jewish state um, and Israel being uh, a state of the Jews, which means the haven from Jews from anywhere in the world. But the paradox or the irony, or the, rather the tragedy, is that Israel, which was created to provide a heaven for Jews anywhere from anywhere in the world, today Israel has become, under the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu, the least safe place for Jews anywhere um, in the world. Now, on the question of support for the one state idea, uh, there isn't much support in Israel. It's only the left-wing fringe that supports um, one state. Uh, on the Arab side, there is more support for this idea because of the distant, this uh, illusion with the Oslo peace process, which was intended to provide, to end up with Palestinian independence, but it hasn't. And the situation of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza today is utterly uh, dire. Uh, and also, the Palestinian leadership has become discredited. The Palestinian Authority enjoys very little legitimacy. It's perceived by uh, Palestinians as the subcontractor for Israeli security. So on the Palestinian side, there has been the idea of one state began with intellectuals like Edward Said, 
but it has gained traction. It gains more and more support, particularly among young people, because they've given up on the idea of nationalism, of independence. It's clearly unattainable. And as a second best, they would like equality. They would like um, um, uh, equal rights within one state. And this is, there's been much uh, controversy about the meaning of the slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Uh, to me, this means not the destruction of the state of Israel, it means freedom for everyone in the space between freedom and equally equality and equal rights for everyone who lives in the space between the Jordan River uh, and the Mediterranean Sea. There's, uh, I get, uh, there's a question from uh, Fevzi Hussein, um, who um, asks about the current fighting in, in Gaza and um, says, uh, and he asks, how realistic do you think it is to expect that the shocking scenes we have witnessed in the last couple of months might be followed up by the International Criminal Court um, and whether justice will be done? And I suppose that could be a question both for those who perpetrated the violence on October the 7th and in the two months that have followed. The International Criminal Court agreed um, three years ago to launch a full investigation of war crimes uh, in the occupied territories. Uh, but the new or not so new British Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan is extremely reluctant to progress this investigation because uh, he doesn't want to hold Israel to account. And here we see Western hypocrisy. When uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, within two days, Karim Khan announced, he's a British barrister, he announced that he would institute an investigation of war crimes. Within a week, he sent an advance party to uh, Kyiv to start gathering evidence for a war, war crimes trial. But on Israel, he's very reluctant to move because against Russia, he's the support of the West and particularly of the United States and Britain. Uh, to hold Israel to account, he doesn't enjoy the support uh, of the West, and therefore he's reluctant uh, to act. But in answer to the question, uh, the scale of the Israeli atrocities of the war crimes in Gaza now is such um, uh, um, that it verges, it, in, it includes definitely ethnic cleansing, the forcible movement of 1.9 out of 2.3 million Palestinians, the forcible displacement within Gaza, that's a war crime. But uh, what Israel is doing, the indiscriminate uh, bombardment of uh, civilians, the killing of civilians uh, on an industrial scale, the destruction of Gaza, and Israel has destroyed or damaged 60% of the houses uh, in Gaza. These are 
very serious war crimes. Uh, and I think it would be difficult for the ICC to ignore all the evidence that is mounting. So I hope that eventually they will um, pursue this investigation of Israeli war crimes. There's a, a, a question from uh, Una Ellis, and she asks about uh, um, the Israeli prime minister who um, took uh, Israel into back into into Gaza, um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and um, his argument was that Israel had to do this for for self defense, and she wants to know how many more days you 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 give Netanyahu. Um, it's been said that his um, uh, his tenure um, uh, is, is is fragile. Do you think he's going to? How much longer do you think he's going to remain in power? I can't predict how long, but I would say he's uh, a dead man walking because he is responsible uh, for um, the collapse of Israeli security that happened on the 7th of October, the Hamas attack. On that day, his entire policy collapsed. His policy was to maintain the aggressive um, occupation of the West Bank, to weaken the Palestinian Authority, uh, and to bolster the Hamas uh, position in Gaza, to enable Hamas to govern Gaza, but to maintain the blockade of Gaza. In other words, to preserve the status quo that gave Israel a free hand uh, to expand settlements and to do whatever it wanted on the West Bank. Netanyahu presents himself as Mr. Security, but he was responsible for the most catastrophic collapse of Israeli uh, uh, security. His line of argument was, um, the Palestinians are defeated, the Palestinians are finished, we can do whatever we like uh, on the West Bank, uh, Gaza is contained within the prison, and at the same time, we can make peace with Arab countries without many making any concessions to the Palestinians. That was his line, and that whole conception that Israel can indefinitely maintain the status quo and the occupation collapse with the Hamas attack uh, uh, on Israel. And everybody in Israel blames Netanyahu for what has happened. He has no support. 76% of Israelis think he should resign. He says this is going to be a long war. He needs a long war because as long as the war is on, he's prime minister. Uh, when he ceases to be prime minister, he would face uh, the trial on serious corruption charges. Uh, and the chances are that he would be convicted and he will end up in prison. Uh, that's why he says, that's why, so he's preoccupied now with political survival at the expense of Israel's long-term interests. And the thing about Netanyahu is that he's completely negative in every way, and he has no political horizon, no political solution to this conflict. He doesn't understand, or he doesn't want to understand that without peace with the Palestinians, 
Israel will never enjoy security. Uh, un unmute yourself. Apologies. That, that seems like a very good place to turn to the, um, to the last question that we're going to have time for. Um, uh, it comes from Sharki uh, Fahel, who um, uh, says that he'd like to uh, wish you and your family a happy Hanukkah. Um, but he'd also like to know what your thoughts are about what um, the day after looks like. I guess he's referring both to the day after of the current fighting in, in, in Gaza, but also perhaps the day after uh, Netanyahu. What do you think, again, to be the clairvoyant, the future holds? First of all, uh, thank you for wishing me happy Hanukkah in my family. I'm not a practicing Jew, but uh, as I understand it, the three main pillars of uh, Judaism are truth, justice, and peace. And I believe in these values. But I look at Netanyahu's government and I don't see any trace of any of these Jewish values. Um, they are the opposite of these Jewish values. Uh, it's a government of mendacity, uh, of uh, imposing acute injustice on the Palestinians, and it shows no interest whatsoever in peace. And this brings me to the day after. Um, uh, America and Europe increasingly are talking about bringing the Palestinian Authority back into Gaza. Uh, this doesn't strike me as a good idea because the Palestinian Authority is incapable of governing of uh, Gaza. Uh, Israel does whatever it wants, uh, and there has been an escalation of settler violence supported by the government, expansion uh, of uh, settlement, and real repression on the West Bank, and also uh, large-scale killing of Palestinians on the West uh, Bank. Uh, there have also been provocations and encroachment on uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque by fundamentalist Jews, and the Palestinian Authority is completely impotent um, and can't do, and it's, it's a do-nothing uh, authority which is discredited. And the thought of um, bringing this incompetent and corrupt uh, and inept authority to rule Gaza on the back of Israeli tanks strikes me. I think all it reveals is the bankruptcy of the people who propose it. Um, now, Netanyahu doesn't want this to happen. He's opposed to bringing the Palestinian Authority. He says he wants Israel, indefinite Israeli security control over Gaza. But he doesn't say who would govern Gaza after the fighting uh, stops. So he doesn't open any political horizon. He doesn't have any political solution to this political uh, problem. So I don't know what, what is going to happen. Uh, but one thing is clear, as long as Netanyahu is prime minister, 
there is not going to be any political solution to this um, uh, to this conflict. It's not a it's not a happy note to to end on. Um, but I suppose that's in some ways why it's kind of so important to be reading um, Avi's book. Here it is again. Um, it's if you want to remember a time where yeah, it was possible for Jews and Muslims and Christians um, to share the same space and share the same culture and same share the same language, um, share the same environment without the bloodshed that we're seeing today. It's a it's a really remarkable book. Um, I recommend everybody here to to read it. It does hold out the hope of you know if it could happen in the past, perhaps somehow it might happen again um, in in the future. Um, and so, yeah, Avi, thank you again for 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 joining us. Your book again is called Three Worlds: Memoirs of an Arab Jew. Uh, and uh, thank you to the audience. I'd now like to hand back to Diana to close out with details of future events. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, both of you. Uh, that was absolutely fascinating, riveting. Um, yes, I just would want to remind everyone that we've got another event on Tuesday um, on the situation in the West Bank, a lot of media focus and attention on Gaza. Um, and we would just want to raise a bit of awareness about what is happening on the ground in the West Bank. So that's Tuesday at 3 p.m. Um, you will get emails about it. It's on the website. So please do register. As always with our webinars, we always put the recordings up on the website as well. Please do share our recordings. Um, we put video recordings up and we also put audio recordings up so you can listen to all of our webinars wherever you listen to podcasts. Share them with anyone you think might be interested. We want to spread the word as far and wide as we can. And then also... If you wouldn't mind um, considering a donation to the Balfour Project, I have posted the links in the chat box. Um, we would really appreciate the cost of a coffee, or if you can better yet sign up to be a friend of the Balfour Project, which means signing up to be a regular donor, any amount, monthly or annual, whichever you prefer, um, then I've also popped the link in the website as well, and you can find it all on the in, on our website as well. So hopefully I'll see a lot of you on Tuesday. So that just gives me time to tell um, Nicholas and Avi, thank you so much for coming along and speaking to all of us. And also thank you so much, everyone who's come along to listen to this webinar today. Hope you all have a lovely rest of the day. Bye. <laughs>